0: Have you ever seen someone walk through rituals that they thought would help get them the outcome they desired? Some athletes have very superstitious ways about them, routines they like to keep, especially if they've had a win streak. we have heard the stories about the athletes who wouldn't change, you know, the dirty pair of pants or socks. They just kept winning, you know, wearing them as they won. When someone's doing this, athlete or not, they call it the illusion of control. The illusion of control is a tendency to overestimate how much control you have over the outcome of uncontrollable events. You know, some folks will throw up routine prayers they think are good luck charms for them. Other characteristics, if you have the illusion of control, they say include dwelling on regrets where we believe we could have controlled the outcome. Risky behaviors, you know, are done by those who think they're in control and can prevent the negative outcomes. And then you have the manifesting crowd, you know, that some people try to try to make something happen through force of will, you know, trying to direct the events with their own thoughts. They tend to attribute the outcome of their, to their own thoughts so they could just think about it, will it hard enough, something will happen for them? I mean, I get it, no one wants to feel helpless. That can be overwhelming. However, if we stop this morning and think about it, there's a lot of of things right now in the world we are helpless to fix or improve in and of ourselves. What are we to do? We could go on in the illusion of control to feel better while everyone else around us knows that we are living in fantasy land. We could despair and give up and give into the ideas of nihilism where we take no true responsibility of the other extreme and give ourselves every excuse to be the lazy person that we are in our character. That's That's another extreme to go on. Or we could... Look to the one who controls all things towards a specific end, the best end, that of his own glory. And today I want to give you hope in this one. And if you yield to him, not only will your soul be helped, but your perspective will find help as well. Let's take our Bibles and turn to Ezra chapter 5. Ezra chapter 5. If you need help in the Pew Bible, there's one there provided for you, for you this morning. You'll find it this morning on page 410-411 in the Pew Bible. We're in the book of the Bible that reveals the struggles of ancient Jews after they came out of Babylonian exile. Imagine being taken captive for decades, and then by some miracle you get released, as prophets had foretold, return to your homeland, and rebuild the meeting place of worship for your people. We begin that process. Imagine having made the very long pilgrimage home, not in cars, but mostly on foot, maybe on camel or horse. And the process of starting the temple construction, only then to have some of the local inhabitants there want you to cater to them, make them feel included by adding their idols to the mix—the very the sin that got you kicked out of the land in the first place. What you well you would either cater to them, go past them, or allow them to cause you to do nothing. Well, doing nothing is exactly what the people did for nearly fifteen years after they started the process. There was a halt, and Ezra and Nehemiah the, those two books they recount the hand of God in the lives of these people's efforts in rebuilding the temple and the city walls, exposing ongoing sin issues, highlighting it's not the end. Uh, this is not the end time. Uh, prophesied uh, glory that the prophets saw. The book of Ezra shows how God faithfully brought many Jews out of captivity. A a new exodus has happened through an anointed one that that Isaiah identified as Cyrus. And they were freed to worship God. The first exodus was, let my people go so that they may worship me. Same thing here. They are released from captivity to go worship They start off well, they begin the process, but opposition comes and they are derailed by local troublemakers who seek to intimidate them, frustrate them, and undermine them on many fronts. As I set up the context, in the Bible, every time God's people set themselves to doing what is right, every time they set themselves to doing what is right and grow, there's always opposition. Friends, can't you see why it's helpful to you as a believer? to expose yourself to this reality. When we set ourselves to going the way of God, we should expect opposition. We expect too often that this world, that our bodies, try not to laugh, right? Our children don't laugh harder. will just cooperate with us in our desires. Yes, even though those desires are noble, shouldn't everything be cooperating with me? My desires are good, as best as I can tell. Friends, our world has fallen because of the fall, because sin entered the world. It has jacked up everything, and God's people are those who know they need God's help every hour. And our context this morning from God's Word is in light of the previous chapter. The tactic employed in several administrations. From Cyrus, Darius, Asherus, that's Xerxes, and Artaxerxes, and chapter five begins by going back to the incident during the time of Darius. Look at chapter four, verse four. It references that prior to the lies contained uh, to the letter to Xerxes. Prior to that, at the end of chapter four, it goes back, referring back to the temple project. Chapter 4, verse 24, look back in your your Bible. Now the construction of God's house in Jerusalem had stopped and remained at a standstill until the second year of the reign of King Darius of Persia. So should opposition and trials deter us from obeying God? What will help God's people? Let's look at God's word. Ezra, chapter 5. When the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, son of Ido, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them, Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, son of Jehoshadak, began to build God's house in Jerusalem. The prophets of God were with them, helping them. At that time, Tatni, the governor of the region west of of the Euphrates River, And Shethar, Bosniai, and their colleagues came to the Jews and asked, Who gave you the order to rebuild this temple and finish this structure? They also asked them, What are the names of the workers who were constructing this building? But God was watching over the Jewish elders. These men wouldn't stop until a report was sent to Darius so they could receive written instructions about this matter. This is the text of the letter that Tachdani the governor of the region west of the Euphrates River, and Shethar Bosniai and their colleagues and officials in the region sent to King Darius. They sent him a report written as follows. To King Darius, all greetings. Let it be known to the king that we went to the house of the great God in the province of Judah. It was being built with cut stones, and its beams are being set in the walls. This work is being done diligently and succeeding through the people's efforts. So we questioned the elders and asked, who gave you the order to rebuild this temple and finish the structure? We also asked them for their names. We could write down the names of their leaders for your information. This is the reply they gave us. We are the servants of the God of the heavens and, the earth, and earth, and we are rebuilding the temple that was built many years ago, which a great king of Israel built and finished. But since our ancestors angered the God of the heavens, and he handed them over to King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, the Chaldean. Who destroyed this temple and deported the people to Babylon? However, in the first year of King Cyrus of Babylon, he issued a decree to rebuild the house of God. He also took from the temple in Babylon the gold and silver articles of God's house that Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple in Jerusalem and carried them to the temple in Babylon. He released them from the temple in Babylon to a man named Sheshbazar, the governor, by the appointment of King Cyrus. Cyrus told him, Take these articles, put them in the temple in Jerusalem and let the house of God be rebuilt on its original site. Then this same Sheshbazar came and laid the foundation of God's house in Jerusalem. It has been under construction from that time until now, but it has not been completed. So if it pleases the king, let a search of the royal archives in Babylon be conducted to see if it's true that a decree was issued by King Cyrus to rebuild the house of God in Jerusalem. Let the king's decision regarding this matter be sent to us. This is God's word. Ezra chapter 5 will not allow us to be neutral about the word of God. We either receive the word or we avoid it. We We will either be walking with the backing of God's word or we will be kicking against it as it condemns us. Ezra chapter 5 will not allow us to give in to despair about rituals or, or, excuse me, about trials. It will either lead lead us into uh, trust the providence of God or to lean more into our anxieties and worries. And Ezra chapter 5 will not allow us to remain silent, beloved. If we are asked about our life, we will either tell the truth about God and ourselves or we'll miss the opportunity to bear witness to him. All of these things and more are here in this often neglected book of the Bible and neglected chapter of the Bible, Ezra chapter 5. Ezra's audience needed to see what happened from both the perspective of God and the people. They needed to learn how God used the prophets in verses 1 and 2. Look at it. They needed to see how God's sovereignty was central in verses 3 through 5. And last, they needed to see the testimony of the people's response to the governors and to Darius in verses 6 through 17. Why? Why? Because God's hand is at work, and always for the good of those who love him, yes, even while they are in trials. Here's the central point. Is there for you in your bulletin. It's printed there. I hope this will help you this morning to follow along. God's people often forget God rules over all things. God's people often forget God's rule over all things. Therefore, let us remember the providence of God while facing opposition. Remember the providence of God while facing opposition. And I have three reasons from the passage why we should remember the providence of God while facing opposition in our walk as believers and as a church. Number one, he sends his word. He sends his word, verses one and two. The feeling here in verses one and two is of grace. We need hope, we need grace. You know, young children who are the, who are close to their parents don't like to see their parents get too far out of sight too long. They want reassurance that that parent is near. And beloved, this is our God speaking to his little children. His word is, is from a father to his children. And his word reassures us by the witness of the Spirit that he is near and we can keep going. So if you're going to take any way, anything away, uh, here it is. God is there. And he's God is here and he's not silent. God sent the word here to the to the people. And beloved, we have been given the word in the scriptures. And hearing God's word reminds the church about his providence. God's providence is his seeing to it. Friends, he will see his people through. He will see his decrees all the way through. And prior to the word, uh, to the reception of the word, what happened? What was going on with the people when they were without, this, without a word from, from heaven? They were at a standstill. They are misguided and they have cast off their God-called assignments. Without revelation, the people cast off restraint and they begin to deteriorate. The same is true in churches that do not centralize the word of God. So friends, if you don't prioritize the word, just imagine you're going to be a stagnant And begin to disintegrate and denigrate, just as these people here were, between chapter 4 and chapter 5. If you don't prioritize the word, your life, your marriage, your parenting, your coping, your witnessing, your caring, and your witness will begin to come down. Ezra 5 shows what happens when the word is central and the people are receiving it. And during this period of the work of rebuilding the temple that was at a halt, the Lord raised up, verse 1, two prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, they came preaching in the name of God, who notices over the whole situation, the text says. So if you were encouraged by the word, or if you've been born again by the word and spirit, or if, you, if, if you've been held back from sin by the word You give thanks to God this morning. He is over you in a special way. You should thank him for his grace in your life because he sent you his word, not just in print, but he illuminated it to your heart. He applied revelation to you. God rules in providential care, as we read this morning, over his universe and over his people to bring them to where he so desires. I don't always understand his rule and his providence, but I believe in it. I understand that if I don't yield to it, my life is not helped. How many today are in a difficult season, and that difficult season seems to be ongoing? Now, we can kick back against it. We can grumble, and we can give in to self-pity, blaming everyone, including God, for our disappointments in a fallen world, or we can yield to the one who's revealing himself to us in his word, the one who controls all things, and by faith, by grace and faith, say, not my will, but yours, O Lord, as our Lord and Savior Jesus did while he, was in the, while he was present on earth. God has chosen to move uniquely in the lives of these prophets to bring a powerful word to the hearts of these people. In verse 2, look with me. Now, how this word has, was effective because Zerubbabel, I'm I'll, I'll, I'll just going to summarize, I'm going to call it Zerubbabel and them, Okay? Z and them, maybe, began to rebuild the temple. And just to be clear about this, Haggai records for us God's grace in this entire thing. Haggai 1.14, the Lord roused the spirit of Zerubbabel and Joshua and the spirit of all the people, the Bible says. So we, do not, we, don't, beloved, we don't need only to share God's word. We need to share it in the power of the spirit. We need the people of the, We need to be people of the word and spirit through prayer. I can change no one's will or heart. The will is tied to its nature, and the nature is sinful. And God alone can change the heart and soften the will. And only God's word and his power can rouse the soul. He does this in believers and in unbelievers. Beloved, don't we need more of God's word, not less? We need it privately, and we need it publicly. We need it in the morning, in the afternoon, and at night. What did discouraged and lethargic Israel need? More Twinkies? More alcohol? More internet to comfort them? More time to see what everyone else had on social media? More of a pity party? No, they needed God's word. Have you ever caught yourself in a pity party? Poor me. I, I have. Uh, things, are, things are so bad for me. God is against me. Mom and dad are so tough on me. How do, friends, how does this help to go down that road? Why not seek the Lord quietly and trust that he will help you to yield to him and the good that he has for you in the midst of that difficult season? They didn't need more time to sleep in from church. They didn't need a bare minimum approach to to faith. They needed the living and enduring word of God. They needed more of that, more than food itself. Praise God, the word of God is living and effective and sharper than a double-edged sword, penetrating as far as the separation of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It's able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. No book can lay you open like the Bible. Friends, we go to the Bible to read it. You know what happens? It reads us. It ends up reading us. Why should we doubt God's word? We need more doubt about our feelings. We should doubt our feelings and ourselves, but never doubt God's word. God said to Jeremiah, is not my word like fire? This is the Lord's declaration. And is my word not like a hammer that pulverizes the rock? There's no secret. Friend, there's no, se- there's no secret here to how to grow as a Christian. There's no secret to how to get out of your stillness. There's no secret of, to how to God's people get going. There's no secret how to gain more victory over difficult areas. The answer is God's word. It's him revealing his word to us. Aren't you thankful that you have a copy of God's word? Sometimes this week weakness to go home and blow the dust off that thing and open it up and read it this week. Why skip your quiet devotion to the word? Why skip church where the word's going to be preached? Why not do all you can to expose yourself and your family and your loved ones to God's word? In the word, we hear about God's perfect holiness and power. We hear about how he, we have all sinned against him and deserve his wrath. But in mercy and love towards the whole world, he sent his son to live and die the death we deserve and enduring God's wrath. And in the word, we hear about Jesus so satisfied, the just demands of God, that Jesus was raised from the dead, just as he said he would do. And in the word, we hear the promise that if any sinner, you and me turn from our rebellion, and trust not in our pitiful good deeds, but in Christ alone, God will forgive us. He will save us. He will clothe us in the righteousness of Christ. You only get that in God's Word. When we sit under the preaching of the Word, we're exposed to God as a body, and then we travel through the Scriptures with Christ at the center, being encouraged, rebuked, challenged, and comforted together for our growth in Christ. This passage shows us another example of how God used the preaching of the word to bring repentance, uh, and and He did it through these prophets, Haggai and Zechariah. Now, let's just look at these two figures for a moment. These are two different ministries, but they're both needed. Haggai was the very straight talking, straightforward preacher. He straight up asked them in Haggai chapter 1, verse 4, Is it a time for your, you yourselves to live in your paneled houses while the house this house lies in ruins? As one guy put it, you, you could call Haggai's sermon title, Tell God He Can Wait. That was his title. And when you don't prioritize hearing God's word, you stop prioritizing God. When you don't prioritize hearing God's word, you don't prioritize God. Do you follow me? You become the focus, you become the center, you become the focus, and your progress will crumble. Haggai says there is work to do, and the time to do it is now. His message was about prioritizing God. And then you have Zechariah, inspired to speak in much more picturesque ways, giving a combination of visions and glimpses of the future. And his application was simple. God's people must repent, and if they do, God will return blessing to them. He preached to them the vision of a great future that included the coming of Messiah and the enlarging of the kingdom of God beyond the people's wildest dreams. And he stepped back from the immediate context to help them see the big picture. Haggai was more, uh, more n- nuts and bolts up close, and Zechariah gave them the big scheme to keep in view. We need preaching that hits us in the present, points us towards the future as well, beloved. And Zechariah pointed beyond a mere temple, physical building. He pointed to a greater temple and builder himself, Jesus Christ. He focused on the coming redeeming shepherd, king. Remember Mark chapter 14? Just a few weeks ago we were in. You will fall away, Jesus said, for it is written, quoting Zechariah, I will strike the shepherd and then the sheep will be scattered. Today we'll observe a sign and a pointer to Jesus Christ, the Lord's Supper he points to our continuous need to keep on looking to Jesus and prepare for glory. And Jesus told us to do this in remembrance of him, as you see on the front of the table up there. And Zechariah saw how the temple was important, because not because the, the sign itself was what mattered the most, but what it pointed to in Jesus Christ. Zechariah 13 promises the people that at some future time a fountain would be open that would take away their sin and their guilt. Who do you think he was talking about? The fountain of cleansing is the first checkpoint on the road to heaven, and that fountain is Jesus Christ. What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. The fountain that was to be opened was not the neck of a sacrificial animal, but the pierced side of the Son of Man, Son of God. Friend, do you know, though, today, that you are a rebel against God? And do you know the cost of sin is death? And the only way to be reconciled to God is through His Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus is the fountain of cleansing. If you come to this fountain, you come to Christ, if you repent and trust in Him, you'll be cleansed and forgiven. Faithful and effective preaching, back to our section here, changed people. They had been crippled by fear, but were now all of a sudden energetic, energetic, faith-filled purposeful and grateful and in their obedience to the Lord. Do you need help with your soul? Get into the word. Sit under the preaching of the word. Listen to sound biblical exposition where the point of the passage is the point of the sermon. Do you need your faith weakened? Well, just focus on you. You want to keep weakening your, your walk? Focus more on you, just like the world does. Love yourself. Focus on yourself. Get you some self. And you will crumble just like everybody else does. But God's word offers us better. Come to Christ. Do not do not heed the call. Friends, if you want to weaken your faith, you want to hurt your walk, don't heed the call of the elders who call you to biblical faithfulness. Just keep following your flesh and see how that works out. Friends, the word is so good because God is so good. He's perfect and good, but he's also kind to grumbling and arrogant people like us who love to tell him how much better he could do us do by us who have loved ourselves. He's so patient with us. Perhaps today, today is the day when you, today, right there in the pew, this is the moment when you get refocused on Jesus. This is the day when you God's word has pierced your heart and you begin to be refocused on Christ. You know, people will be able to see the difference in your life, right? There was a difference that happened here in the passage. That's the difference is people can tell something has changed in your life because of God's word and his impact. All of that to say, number one, and was my longest point. He sends his word. He sends his word. Number two, as we remember the providence of God while facing opposition, number two, remember this. He superintends in surprising ways. He superintends in surprising ways. He superintends in surprising ways. Verses 3 through 5. Often kids get things in the wrong perspective just like we do. Young people hang with me, okay? So a young person will think that if they own a gadget or a toy, oh, boys, don't beat me up today, then they have total authority over it. And grandparents sometimes add to this situation. Just saying. I love grandparents, by the way. I've had to remind a child or two or three <clears throat> that while they may receive or have bought that, an item, it's currently living rent-free in a climate-controlled building called my house. My money pays for its continued life, its battery life, and its protection. Not to mention, it's under my dominion of my territory. It's ruled. Um, it's ruled uh, within. If it's, if it's uh, ruled by uh, the queen and I. As bad within our borders, it has to go. And all the parents said, amen. amen. Well, here we see the local lower authorities causing stress. And here's the thing. You know, they can't move a muscle unless God permits it. you got to remember that, right? They, they are in the position of authority. We are in control. This is our area. oh, oh, oh friend. There's one who's over everything the Bible wants us to see. These authorities causing such stress, they can't move a muscle unless God permits it. And God's providence is surprising in the challenges He allows us. We get taken back as humans, but God is never taken back. Verse 5 should jump out to you. But God, look at the text, was watching over the Jewish elders. That is no small passing statement. That's everything. God is seeing to all things. This trial and test has come up by his permission and he's going to move it the way he wants it to go. To teach what he wants to teach and to point to Christ. Friend, this trial you are in today, some of you are in the midst of difficulties. God thought you needed that. Take it up with him. Take it to the Lord in prayer. But he thought you and I needed those particular trials. But take heart, God's in control. We are small, he's finite. He's infinite. Sorry. We are finite. He's infinite. And you can see how the hand of God is over the whole situation, providing for and protecting his people to fulfill his commands. You, you, some of you may be frustrated that God's not giving your way. Well, maybe you're about your kingdom and not his. Maybe you need to reorient your heart towards his kingdom, and you might have more doors open. Verse 3, the local governors come, and, and they ask two central questions who told you you could do this and what are the names of these workers and verse 6 reveals how they would not stop until they could properly tell on them to Darius again some plenty of time has passed they had forgotten about Cyrus's decree and there's always an ultimate question asked in dealing with the world for obeying God isn't there beloved who do you think you are for your beliefs who do you think you are and by what, by what authority do you dare to do what you do separate from us and our approval? And God's people, we sit back and say, we, don't, we never needed it to begin with. We never needed anybody's approval to obey the Lord. Who are you? The world rarely asks themselves who gave them authority to rebel against God's word, against God's design. They don't ask that question. Verse 5 suggests then that the governors were inclined to believe, though, the Jewish account. An attitude which, again, the author ascribes to the providence of God. You know what happens, though? The work goes on. They're not, they're not stopped this time. They just keep on. They trust that the Lord wants to bring it to a halt. He'll stop them physically. But they are set on obeying the Lord because of his oversight. And notice how God ensures that certain things there do not happen to them. I mean, the governors were unable to stop the work of the rebuilding. And second, the elders of the Jews were not tempted to succumb to their implied threats. Psalm 124, glories in God's preventative providence. If the Lord had not been on our side, let Israel say, he says, blessed be the Lord who has not left us ripped apart by their teeth. We have escaped like a bird from the hunter's net. The net is torn and we have escaped. Our help is in the name of the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Friends, have you forgotten that? Have you forgotten ultimately who's in control? The truth is put exquisitely here. The eye of God was watching over them. He sees no matter where we are, no matter how dark things may get. So, all that to say, let me apply it here like this Friends, let God's word inform you so you're encouraged not to shrink back from obeying Jesus Christ. Who is worthy of our anxiety, God or the media? Who's worthy of our anxiety, God or the politicians and the mobs of this world? Who's the real governor in the passage? Who's the real king in the passage? It's God. Friend, maybe the Lord has put challenging people in your life to draw your eyes closer to him in a new way. He wants you to focus on his approval and not on others approving you. And the way to be free, some of you need to be free this morning. I have been there before, worried or, or too consumed about someone else's opinion. There's only one way to be free, and that's to focus on God. Focusing on loving him focusing on loving others, but never at the expense of compromising the truth. God allows and permits. He also does not permit. And what should you do? Determine by grace to fear him. All that to say he superintends in surprising ways. Number three, as we remember the providence of God while facing opposition. Number three, he causes his people to testify in truth. He causes his people to testify in in truth. Verses 6 through 17. It's my shortest point. Verses 7 and 10. Look at the text. Look at the Bible with me. It records the standard procedures they go through to verify the Jews in this work. And they're clear on their, on their efforts. Verse 8. I love verse 8. The work is being done diligently and it's succeeding. Again, the providence of God. He's overseeing you. How else can you explain? And may the Lord do that in our church. Look at verses 11 through 16, reveals the amazing testimony the leaders gave. I love their unashamed witness. Look at, look at verses 11 through 16. We are the servants of the God of the heavens and the earth, rebuilding the temple. I mean, bold, just exclusivity declared. There's one God, we're serving him. You should know this, Darius, we're serving the one true God. He governs all things. He's the God of heaven and earth. He is self-sustaining, self-energizing, eternal, upholding everything by the word of his power. This This is a robust confession. And God, please fill our churches with people who know who God is in truth, who are full of sound doctrine as it pertains to the person of God. Look at verse 12, a biblical confession. They agree with God about their sin. They admit their family history is bad and how they angered God. Now, I want to be clear. Some might hear that that God was angered and really misunderstand this. So let me just take a minute and be really clear. This is not like human anger. This is not a drunken father coming home. This is not like that at all. God is impassable. His expression of anger is consistent with his other perfections. He's not subject to suffering like we are. The eternal one of Israel does not lie or change his mind, for he is not a man who changes his mind. We worship a God who's in complete control of who he is and what he does. Never is there any action by God that's out of line with his unchanging character. Amen? Amen. I hope you know that. Instead of being divided by emotional states like we are, or overcome by sudden, unexpected moods, God's not subject to mood swings like we are. He ain't weak like that. That just reveal he's vulnerable? He, that's not what the Bible says. The God of the Bible is a God who never becomes anxious, lonely, or compulsive. He's never at odds with himself, divided over conflicting expressions of his perfections. No, God is impassable. But in keeping with God's warning, Judah received God's promised wrath for their ongoing lawlessness, murder of their children, immorality, injustice, and idolatry. So what we learn here is a concession of past failure. And their confession of past failure is important. And I want you to track with me, church, if I could just draw your attention to this. That acknowledgement of the past sin is important for their renewal going forward. If you don't embrace the doctrine of the fall and of sin, you are living in a false reality. You are living a fake life if you think that sin is not real and that you yourself are not a sinner. You are in fantasy land. You know deep down as I'm preaching that you are a sinner. You will either suppress that in your selfishness or you will humble yourself by the grace of God. Am I telling you the truth? God works this in our hearts. He causes us to confess the truth, namely that we are sinners born in sin and God would be just to hand us all over to wrath. That phrase in verse 12 reminds us what Jesus said about himself being handed over to the Sanhedrins and Gentiles to be crucified. That's a term of judgment. The worst thing, the worst thing, the worst thing that can happen to us is for God to hand us over. Young people, I want to square up with you this morning. You may not know it, but you are simultaneously very gifted and very foolish at the same time. You are simultaneously very gifted and very foolish. While you have these young gifts, you also have these glaring moments of what us adults call stupidity. Because we were there too one time in your, in your young life. We were once doing things foolish too. And sometimes we still do. You may think you need to reject your parents and God, but let me warn you. Please ask God today to keep you from going further into self-deception. Beg him not to hand you over to the world, but that you would come to the mercy that's available in Christ. You will be held accountable for what you've heard this morning. You will have a greater accountability in death than others do because you have been warned from God's word. Do not be, do not beg the Lord that he would not hand you over, but that he would receive you and welcome you because he will in Christ Jesus come to Christ. Verse 11, the Jews had caught the vision of their great task. They saw themselves as continuing what had begun in the past. God has forgiven him. His mercy was shown in abundance. God had been helping them from, from past, and now they're acknowledging his continuing help. Verses 13 through 16, a retelling of chapter 1. That's where they say, hey, we had this given to us from Cyrus. Look at, chapter, look at verses 13 through 16. They recount to him exactly what was been declared from the government. And Ezra waves uh, at us to reveal that the, that the God of the past is also the God of the present and future right here. These people were acting... As people of the book. When you read their response back towards Darius, they are acting like people of the book. The world may seem powerful, and in many ways, compared to us, it is. The world, though, has not been authorized by God to carry forward his program. The King of Kings has not announced to the world that he will be always with them, but he has announced that to those who are his people I am with you even to the end of the age. And he wants you to hear that today, beloved. He wants us to live in the unique circumstances of being opposed by the world and authorized by him. Let me say that again. God's word teaches his people this, that we live in unique circumstances of being opposed by the world but authorized by him to be his witnesses. No matter what the threats may amount to, Fulfillment and peace can ultimately be found only in knowing that we are engaged in serving our God and our King. Have you reached the point in your life to know these truths, beloved? Have you reached the point that you will stop living anxious for the world, but more anxious for the Lord as you adore and tremble before him? Are we driven by concern to worship God with a singular, determined resolve, no matter what the cost? Because when this grips our hearts, we can't help but, as you see right here in the passage, testify to God. All of that to say, he causes his people to testify in truth. Beloved, do you have hope in this God and his son, Jesus, by the Spirit? Or are you, like everyone else, living under the illusion that you are, you exercise ultimate control? I hope that those blinders will come off your eyes today, and you'll know that there's only one who exercises total, complete sovereignty over all things. And his name is God. His name is Jesus. Let us be those who say, we are the servants of the God of heaven and earth. Amen. Let's pray. Oh God, what is like your word your word exposes us, it, it it points us to the truth, it heals us in Christ, it comforts us and promises, it reminds us of your control and how we can walk and, tr- and trust, Lord, that we can walk and live by faith in you. So Lord, help us not to exercise misguided faith in ourselves or in the false promises of this world, but in the true promises of your word, by your grace and for your glory. In Jesus' name, Amen.